Hey everyone, Corey here. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Flirting with Models. If you're enjoying the show, I'd greatly appreciate it if you'd take a moment to rate, review, and most importantly, share with a friend. Word of mouth is how this podcast grows. And if you'd like to learn more about Newfound's platform of return-stacked mutual funds, ETFs, and model portfolios, head over to returnstacked.com. Now on with the show. Okay. Three, two, one, let's do it. Hello and welcome everyone. I'm Corey Hofstein and this is Flirting with Models, the podcast that pulls back the curtain to discover the human factor behind the quantitative strategy. Corey Hofstein is the co-founder and chief investment officer of Newfound Research. Due to industry regulations, he will not discuss any of Newfound Research's funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinion and do not reflect the opinion of Newfound Research. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Clients of Newfound Research may maintain positions and securities discussed in this podcast. For more information, visit thinknewfound.com. This season is sponsored by Simplify ETFs. Simplify seeks to help you modernize your portfolio with its innovative set of options-based strategies. Full disclosure, prior to Simplify sponsoring the season, we had incorporated some of Simplify's ETFs into our ETF model mandates here at Newfound. If you're interested in reading a brief case study about why and how, visit simplify.us slash flirtingwithmodels. And stick around after the episode for an ongoing conversation about markets and convexity with the convexity maven himself, Simplify's own Harley Bassman. Tina Lindstrom is a partner at First New York, where she manages an oil volatility portfolio. She began her career at Susquehanna and eventually worked her way up to managing both the high cap equity index group and the commodity volatility group. This gives her the unique perspective to be able to compare and contrast how these two markets operate. Tina explains what makes commodity markets unique, how the structure of markets has changed over time, how relative value trades might emerge, and what happens when you're trading volatility and front month futures go negative. Please enjoy my conversation with Tina Lindstrom. Tina, welcome to the show. Excited to have you here. Excited to get I think a little bit of a different perspective on this show. We don't get a lot of people trading commodities, and we definitely don't get a lot of people trading volatility in the commodity space. So I think this is going to be a fun one for me and the listeners. I would love to start off. I know you began your career as a trader at Susquehanna. Can you tell me a little bit about your path to becoming a trader? Thanks for having me, Corey. Well, I was recruited right out of college. I went to the Ross School of Business at Michigan. And I was recruited for an internship. And after that summer, I was hired. So I had to be an assistant trader for a year, shadowed some senior traders. And during the day when you were not clerking, they would explain trades that happened during the day, why they were good, why they were bad. And you can ask them as many questions as you wanted to when they weren't busy. It was very team-oriented, a lot of mentorship at Susquehanna. And then after work, you would go, and I think two times a week, you would go to mock trading, and they would simulate a stock during mock trading, and you would compete against, let's say, 10 to 15 of your classmates. 
and whoever did the best, they would pick maybe six from each city a year after about a year of clerking. And then you would take some mathematical tests and then they would see who they wanted to promote from each city. And then you would go to Balakinwood where you would learn. During my time, they hired the head of mathematics from the University of Virginia. And that person gave us theoretical training during the day for a few hours. And then we would do mock trading. And then we would also play poker with each other. And after four o'clock, the partners would come and play poker with us and other senior traders. So it was pretty cool. You were playing poker with each other. And then 4.30, Jeff Yaz would come and play poker with you. And that was how they educated you. And that was how they learned about you and formed judgments about you and watched your decision-making. It was, it was really pretty cool. Do you still play poker? Only during a day. <laughs> Only-, <laughs> Only during market hours. Only during market hours. So I know you eventually ran SIG's high cap equity index group and their commodity volatility group, which naively from the outside sound like just very different types of products to me. I'm curious how you would sort of compare the equity index versus the commodity derivatives markets. The equity indices were very similar to equity style options, except then you had the correlation component. The skew was usually to the puts. The fear was to the downside. To the upside, the calls, it was negative call skew, right? As we drifted higher, there's less fear. The vol surface was lower on the upside. So in commodities, it's almost the exact opposite. The fear is to the upside. If you, you're afraid when you run out of a commodity, that's when you're afraid. When prices spike, when you can't get supplies, that's when you're afraid. Most of the people who are hedging are people who need the commodity. For example, lumber or ethanol, corn for ethanol or crude oil or something like that. Incidentally, now crude oil vol is similar to equity style vol, actually, the skew, the vol surface, because there's a lot of hedgers from the macro space that come in and play. And so the skew resembles an equity style skew until something happens. When something happens, it will tend to flip and look like the typical commodity vol smile. So before we go further diving into the things that make the commodity space unique, I was told that I have to ask you about the astrologist that was in the Russell options pit. So what's the story there? So there was a guy named QK. His badge was QK. And QK was an astrologist. And he, as soon as you walked into the pit, he would ask you what your birthday was. And he had this book that matched the times when something happened astrologically between your birthday and his birthday. And he would go after people and trade with them when the stars aligned. <laughs> he would like specifically choose a specialist based upon when the stars aligned? So on the knife pit, it was an open outcry pit. So he knew everybody's birthday. So he would go up to a random local market maker, specialist, whoever, and trade with them at 221 on six months from his birthday, 200 days from your birthday, whatever his book said was an advantageous time for him to enter a trade with you. And so how long did he last in the pit? For a long time. He just, he didn't <laughs> trade anything. He, I think he was a dog walker. 
for a living, but during the day, so I think he made money as a dog walker, and then he would just stand in the pit all day and wait for these times to trade with you. One of the things that I've learned when talking to SIG traders and ex-SIG traders throughout the years is that almost everyone at SIG seems to be trained in a relative value style of trading. And so to level set the rest of this conversation, I was hoping you might be able to walk us through what sort of a prototypical relative value trade might look like, maybe specifically in the commodity space, the sort of things you're looking for and the structures of the positions that you're putting on. So first you would come and you would fit, let's say, your vol smile in all the different months and all the different skew points to fit the market. Then you would look for any kinks. So let's say vol was on the front month 30, then 32, then it goes to 31, then back to 32. Then you'd wonder to yourself, okay, why is the third month cheaper than the second month and the fourth month? And then you would say to yourself, okay, is there seasonality? Oh, there's seasonality. Forget it. Okay, move on. There's no seasonality. What is, what is the reason for this kink? You would investigate further and you would say, okay, oh, I heard that this macro fund decided to, this macro tourist decided to, that in three months that we were going to rally. So he decided to sell puts live to express his flat price view. Then you think, oh, okay, that makes sense. And to me, after I've investigated and found out why it was there, then I could put the trade on. Then I could buy, I could buy that month, the low month, sell the vol around it, and then wait until it gets fixed. Once he's done with the order, probably some other vol trader will come say, oh, that doesn't make sense. And they'll put it back into line. My style is not to sort of fix things. Mine is as little slippage as possible in entering these relative value trades to keep the expectancy there. And I wait for somebody else to put into line. You briefly alluded to seasonality effects. And I find, at least in my research, there are seasonality effects in almost all markets, but it does seem like a particularly acute factor for commodities where things like weather patterns and harvest cycles are going to play a really important role. One that I hadn't really given much thought to, but you brought up in our prior conversation was around how different futures contracts may actually represent new versus old crops. So same futures in theory, but totally different commodities. I'm curious as to how that affects the underlying opportunity set for relative value trading. So in equities, it's more interest minus dividend. You can calculate the basis. You can't really use that model in commodities. If you try to interpolate one month, unless they, so there's options months based on one future, there'll be two or three on one future. You can trade those against each other. But if you were trading options on one future versus options on another future that where there could be some kind of very different seasonality, very hurricane season versus non-hurricane season, freeze versus drought season, you could be in a lot of trouble. So you would never, in the case that we talked about before, where you would just butterfly it, you can kind of do that after adjusting for seasonality. But if you do something like that in orange juice or coffee or cotton, you can get in a lot of trouble. So you really have to be, you really have to know what you're doing and explore all those things before you put on time spreads. 
commodities is a space that's changed a lot over the last 20 years. In the early 2000s, there was this really big uptick in the use of commodities as a passive asset class. And in, after 2008, there was a huge inflow of capital into CTA-style strategies. How is this sort of structural change in market participants flowed through into how the related volatility markets behave? Most of the people who trade options are hedgers or specs who have been in the market, whatnot, and a lot of people who trade, trade on fundamentals. But sometimes you have to watch out for macro unwinds or some macro guy with maybe it's not a whole macro sell-off event. Maybe he has a problem and then they have to sell a sizable amount or buy a sizable amount of the book to cover. And then you trigger signals from technicals that trigger CTA selling or buying. Then it triggers other stops. There's a lot of stops used in commodities and you'll have a nonsensical move where it's, you would think it's a one or two standard deviation, but then it's like, how could this be? It's like a five standard deviation move. We were trading 1% up or down ranges for two weeks. And all of a sudden we traded a five standard deviation move for no reason. Why? Oh, CTA's got liquidated. Okay. It's fundamentally bullish still, but we just had this huge move down. Why? CTAs. So I would think that it brings sort of a why factor, I guess, some outlier event that you can't really price that you really have to have in the back of your mind. How has that affected the way you think about managing risk in your portfolio? You definitely always have to have your risk tied off. So if you think, okay, 95% chance I'm right, I think vol is too high. And let's say you get short some, some vol, you have to take part of your money and you have to spend it on some wings just to stop the risk from getting out of control if something you didn't expect happened. So you're now a partner at First New York where you manage an oil volatility fund specifically. What do you see as being the biggest difference in this role versus when you were operating as a market maker? I think the market making business is extremely hard because you take the other side of a trade that somebody's thought about. Somebody has spent time researching and thinking about what trade to put on, and then they put it into the market. And then you have to take the other side. If you're a market maker, you have to price the slippage of volatility well. And how much am I making to take the other side of this trade and maybe try to get out of it after fees and in time to scrape some money? Whereas a prop trader, I'm a prop trader now. And so I decide when to enter a trade I decide what kind of structure to put on and what the Greeks and the risk reward looks like. So I'm the one now who has sat there beforehand and thought about what I want to put on. I think it's very different. I, I like this side better than being a market maker. Do you think your experience as a market maker has made you better on this side of the table, either your direct experience or your interaction with clients from the other side? I definitely think so because you know how a market maker thinks. You know they're trying to game you. They're trying to maximize their expectancy. And from my side, a lot of the alpha is net of execution costs. It's net of execution costs. And one, the largest execution costs is bad execution. So if I'm pricing something myself and I ask for a quote, I know if they're fading me, 
if they're making markets too high, thinking I'm a buyer or whatever. So I definitely think I execute my own trades better with my experience. So when I was talking to you at first about coming on the podcast, I think you very adamantly told me five or six times that you are not a quant. You're not a quant. You shouldn't be on a quant podcast. I I personally very strongly disagree. I think anyone who operates in the field of derivatives has a very strong quantitative background. I think probably what you more meant was that you're more discretionary, less systematic. Doesn't mean you're not a quant. But so with that in mind, what I do want to know is what is your process for generating discretionary trade ideas? What is my process? Okay. So basically, because I'm a vol trader, I study the vol surface every one and a half minutes. I study the vol surface and how it moves every one and a half minutes real time. So I can see the kinks in the portfolio. And then I go through the process. What am I missing? Why is this kink here? Okay, this guy's betting on this thing. Okay, he's expressing it wrong. He's he's a Delta guy. He's a guy who's betting on crude oil going up. He's a guy who's betting on crude oil going down. Okay, I have an axe. I think that I want to sell vol. Okay, I want to sell vol. So this guy, these calls are too high because somebody's betting on futures going up. Okay, I think futures are also going up. So I'm going to sell the same calls hedged, or maybe I'll overhedge it. What kind of turbo am I using? How am I adjusting my price vol correlation? Stuff like that. So that's sort of my process. I'm more opportunistic relative value. And then I'll say, okay, in this other product, because I do trade the whole entire barrel of oil, I'll say, okay, in this product is expensive, but maybe I can buy this against somewhere else and hold it in my portfolio and just reduce my variance a little bit. So because you brought it up, you mentioned you do trade the entire barrel. For those of us who maybe aren't as well-versed in the different parts of the barrel, can you explain what those different parts are? And then I'd like to know, how does the market structure of those different products differ in terms of how the markets operate or the vol surfaces look? And how does that present different opportunities to you in sort of a relative asset basis? Okay. So I trade... Brent and WTI crude oils. I trade gas oil, which is what barges are run off of. And I trade heating oil, which is very similar to jet fuel. So airlines will come in and hedge there and RBOB gasoline. So in the crude oils, you have producers hedging. Producers could be an oil company, it could be a sovereign country like Mexico or Brazil. And they come in and they hedge their oil production. But in RBOB and heating oil, you have sort of opposite flow because you have consumers who also hedge. So in crude oil, you would have put buyers, call sellers. In heating oil, you could have call spread versus put sellers. They buy the call spread, sell the put. Same thing with RBOB. So they're different. They have different kind of flows, but they have different risks too. So RBOB. If you didn't know any better, you would get sort of enticed into selling August, September, October RBOB vol. That would be a very big mistake. It looks very expensive relative to heat and even crude. But then if you sell it and then all of a sudden it's hurricane season and something hits the Gulf of Mexico, you're in big trouble because it's very, very liquid and nobody will let you out. So those are sort of the things you have to be cognizant of when you're trading that stuff. How do you think about 
position size, both at the outset of a trade and managing it over its lifetime? I would say because of my Susquehanna training. Okay. So first you would enter a trade if the higher edge you think you're getting to what you think it's worth, the more you would put on. And also you have to adjust that for the volleyball. So for example, last year during March and April, today happens to be the one year anniversary of the low print in crude oil history. So if I was ever trading 300, 500, 1,000 up, I was not trading that size during those days. You have to pick and choose. Okay. But back then, of course, markers were wider. So you had more wiggle room. But definitely, you did not want to be short gamma. You can't get that back. So you have to size appropriately that you know that you're going to be able to get out and know how much money is that going to cost you. So I would say now during a normal environment, it's how much do I know what's going on? Why is it trading here? How much edge do I think I'm getting? What levels and sizing should I scale into it? Because I know if something happens and it doesn't go as planned, how much will it cost me to get out? How much liquidity behind this is there? Because you brought it up, you know we have to go there and talk about when front month oil futures traded, I think the low print was like a negative $37 per barrel or something like that in April 2020. And negative prices are going to break a very traditional volatility model. And so I'd love to know sort of how your day went. If you can recall what it was like April, I think it was April 20th, 2020, the one year anniversary, how you navigated this event how did it flow through to your models? How did it flow through to your portfolio and how you manage the risk? So that's funny because most of the market, we use an out-of-the-box model that's been around for years, very popular. I'm not going to call it out, but it broke. Why? Log normal models did not work when uh, prices could go negative. So the exchange listed negative prices, negative strikes in oil. and the skew, the term structure and the skew, the vol surface, you could not, it was unmodelable. I mean, the numbers made no sense at all. I've never seen numbers like this before. And basically broke. I would look at the model and I would say, okay, using Black Shoals, it was giving me, if I bought puts, I would get long futures, something outrageous. So working with the company that made the model, they said, well, okay, the only way to fix this, and it's not a great fix, is to use a CSO model, a calendar spread model, where calendar spreads in commodities, because it can be backwardated or contango, the front month could be over the second month or vice versa. It could be positive or negative. So that's the only model that you can use. So everybody flipped over to a CSO model to price this event. So it was very dicey. And because of that, markets became very, very, very wide and there was good opportunity there. So it makes me think that when the market gets dicey and typical liquidity providers have their models break or the models start being a garbage in, garbage out scenario, there's sort of two responses. One is to go in and trade it with your intuition. The other is to just step away and not trade at all. 
Do you think that part of the dysfunction in the market that day was largely because of number two, that many participants just felt unable to trade the markets and so they disappeared? Well, they didn't really know what things were worth. And I would say in a lot of the market making companies, it's a whole team. There's one or two senior traders, and then there's three to five less senior traders. You can make a mistake. You can make a big, big, big mistake and blow your company out. So I think the risk was there. And I think people, companies, the heads of companies, everybody had to have a discussion. What do we want to do here? Do we want to push chips in or do we want to take chips out? And I think if you didn't see sort of this thing coming and you didn't have the bullets, you couldn't trade. If you weren't selling out of long convexity at a great price, you weren't selling it short. Equity markets have mostly gone electronic at this point, but the same isn't necessarily true for commodity volatility markets. How do you think the efficiency of a market changes when trades are still largely done via hoot and holler or instant messages? I think there are electronic markets in these commodities markets, but they're definitely jumpier than equity markets because there's so much different risk that you could not be sure of. It could be, oh, is the producer trading with me? Is this producer natural hedging? And they're not making any kind of assumption or a statement about the vol surface or the skew. They just want to hedge. Or is this somebody who knows, is this marathon oil? Do they see a hurricane coming? And I don't know about it yet. So it's, I would say it's like trading a higher vol stock. And I would say those probably are wider on the screen electronically in equity options as well. How much more or less important do relationships become when you're trading hoot and holler and via instant messenger? I mean, do you have to know the people on the other side to feel like you're going to get a good fill or accurate information? I think you really do. Relationships matter a lot. I think in all businesses, right? I think with equity options, if you're the top two or three equity options shows, you get the best information. And brokers, I think in general, in every market, they want to know you're an upstanding person. You're not going to do anything manipulative to run the stock on them where they can't get filled. You have mutual respect where you know they're not lying to you and they're showing you their hand. If it's 200, but it's 2000, you're not going to trust them anymore. So if we have mutual respect, it goes a long way. Plus the voice broker stuff, I'm committing millions of dollars thousands of barrels of oil every trade. If I wasn't a good person, I, hey, I don't know the trade. That's not, that's not what I meant. I don't know. No, you know what? I didn't buy that price. Whereas if you were trading electronically, then it would be up to the exchange. Then you can play to the exchange and they would be the arbiter. Here, it's like the market almost couldn't function if you didn't have mutual trust and you didn't know the other person, didn't have a relationship with them. Oil is an incredibly political asset class at this point, which seems like it introduces a very unique risk vector compared to maybe some other like agricultural products, for example. How do you think this affects how oil behaves and what does it ultimately mean to you in terms of how you have to think about managing the portfolio? I would say before I traded oil, when I was trading ags, you pay attention mostly to 
prop reports, weather. Now I'm on Twitter looking for aircraft movement. I'm following Arab Twitter. I'm following Israeli Twitter. I'm seeing what terrorist attacks are happening. I want to see breaking news. I want to know if there's a reshuffling of the oil minister. Okay, what does this mean? Who is this guy more bulled up? Is he good? Is he calming to the oil market? Or is he going to increase volatility? How does the new president get along with Saudi Arabia? Okay, what's going to happen when the Khashoggi report comes out? Are they going to call Saudi Arabia out? What's that going to happen? Oh, they're doing it right before the OPEC meeting. Why are they doing that? Okay, how does that affect the optionality of the options month with that gamma? All of these things. How are the talks going with Saudi Arabia and Iran? You have to study all of that. You have to understand the players And it's Saudi Arabia, it's Iran, it's UAE, it's Israel, it's the US, it's Russia. I have to pay attention to all these things that I've never had to before. So it's quite different. One of the things that it seems to imply to me is that because oil is so political, you end up getting a lot of macro tourists who enter the space and start speculating from a macro political perspective. What do you think they get wrong about the market when they come in naively? Sometimes they overpay. A lot of macro tourists, the way they like to express their views is by buying options now. Instead of buying futures, they buy options. Why? Their downside is capped. They can say to an investor, okay, I spent 1% of AUM on this strategy. It worked out or it didn't work out. If it didn't work out, I lost 1%. If it worked out, I'm making 5%. They could quantify risk reward to their investors. Now, sometimes I've seen fund managers be very right about direction, but they were wrong on the vol level they were paying. To express the view, let's say they want to buy 20,000 calls. Well, that 20,000 calls, let's say you go, and a lot of macro guys go electronically, they hide it on the screen, okay, but they don't hide it that well. And People can sniff them out and they execute poorly. If you give it to a broker, he comes up with maybe a wider price, but he gets you done at one price. Better than if I had 20,000 options to buy and I was buying it a thousand at a time and people saw me coming, kept raising the price, kept raising the price. Because now when the macro tourist is right and is trying to get out, oh, this guy, this strike, oh, he picked this strike, oh, okay. He's on the screen. Let me lower my vols on the screen. Okay, let me lower my vols a little bit more. And they'll be 1,000% right on the flat price move, but made very little money, if at all, because they expressed it wrong and they executed wrong. You told me a, a funny story before we started recording about someone who came in and bought option contracts on the wrong futures contract. You mind retelling that story? It was maybe it was like five to seven years ago. And I forget the exact thing, but I think they moved the OPEC meeting or something. And so on the screen, I think it was a July contract. They moved it to July. Okay. They moved it from June to July or something. And the July options contract for crude oil just went ballistic. Somebody was betting on a bullish result during that OPEC meeting. We really didn't understand it because options on commodities expired different expirations than equity options. And I think it expired either a month or month and a half before the OPEC meeting. 
So they bought the wrong month. So it, it, it took maybe two or three days for me to at least realize this is a major sale. Initially, I didn't understand what was going on because I had the time spread on right. I legged into it and then it was really going against me. And I'm like, what is going on? And I was like, oh my God, this is a macro person who didn't realize the expiration dates and turned out to be a super trade. So this whole commodity volatility space is unique, arguably pretty esoteric as we just sort of reviewed. And it's not an asset class or a derivative space that most allocators are going to be intimately familiar with. And so what I want to know is if I flip the table on you and you're doing due diligence on yourself. I thought you're skipping this question. No, this is one I got to ask. You were going to skip it last time. No, I got to ask. What question are you going to ask yourself and why? So I think perhaps the years of experience somebody has at running that particular strategy. And also one thing you've already touched on, how important relationships are and how much of that does that particular manager have? I think that's super important. So the world seems to be opening back up. People are getting vaccines. A lot of people I know at least are starting to plan travel in the summer or fall pretty hopefully. So keeping the fingers crossed that the world maybe gets back to some semblance of normalcy later this year, what are you most looking forward to? So I used to go into the office every day and I'm friends with a lot of the brokers in the market. I'm friends with a lot of them and I would see them about twice a week. And I would say, let's skip the Jean-Georges. Let's go boxing. Let's go work out. That was my thing. Let's go to Barry's together. Let's go to Rumble. And Rumble's been closed for a long time. So I am looking forward to going to Rumble twice a week or SoulCycle with my friends and just to hang out. Well, Tina, thank you so much for joining me. This has been a great conversation. Thank you so much for having me. If you're enjoying the season, please consider heading over to your favorite podcast platform and leaving us a rating or review and sharing us with friends or on social media. It helps new people find us and helps us grow. Finally, if you'd like to learn more about newfound research, our investment mandates, mutual funds, or associated ETFs, please visit thinknewfound.com. And now, welcome back to my ongoing conversation with Harley Bassman. Harley, you're known as the convexity maven, and you very frequently write about long convexity trades. I'm curious, in your opinion, when does it make sense to be short convexity? It depends if you're selling to maturity, to expiry, or you're selling over a horizon where you plan on buying it back. The big option sellers that we see, the institutional option sellers, tend to sell options every day, one to three month options, and then they go and they do a what we call delta hedge, but they do some kind of trade also every day to manage that risk. And they in general win on these short day at options because implied volatility generally trades eight to 12% over realized volatility on liquid instruments. So if you're in basic equities, basic bonds, basic commodities, basic currencies, if you sell one through month options and hedge them every day, you will tend to make money. And the reason why it trades 
let's say 10% over-realized is once again, risk preference. People are not risk neutral and therefore they're scared. And these losses can be very magnified with short optionality. So people demand a little bit of an extra premium. And so that's one way of doing it. That is not for anybody listening to this call. That's just where the options come from. Number two would be a sell to maturity. So most often for me, I'm selling a put on some asset I would like to own at a certain price. It's a targeted buy. As long as I have the cash in the bank to buy that asset, and I'm still confident I want to own that asset at a given point, I'm happy to sell that option, assuming that the matrix of where the market is now, where the strike is, how much money I'm taking in. If a stock's trading at 50, and I sell the 40 put for a dollar, that doesn't work for me. If I like the stock that much, I mean, I think it's probably going to go higher than 51. That's probably a bad idea. You want to take in enough money so that it covers the opportunity cost of the stock never going down, but going up a lot and you're missing the trade. The other one would be a covered call, which mathematically is functionally the same as a short put. Long a stock, short the call, put call parity, black shoals equals the put. So once again, if given a high enough volatility and a profile, and it's, I own a stock at 50, I would sell it at 60 if it got there. That's my target. And someone will pay me three or four points for that 60 strike. Well, I'm picking up another three points on what I already have, and I'm happy to sell it at 60. That is a fine thing to do. Of course, the risk is you better be confident that the stock's going to stay where it is to go a little higher. If the stock's going to drop by 20 points, then clearly you should have just sold the stock as opposed to selling the call. So that's where I tend to be comfortable. I very, very rarely sell long dated options, except for one time, but we might talk about that in a different podcast. <music>